Hello, this is Steve Goldsmith, Professor of Urban Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School, and you're listening to Data Smart City Pod, where we bring on top innovators and experts to discuss the future of cities and how to become data smart. This is Steve Goldsmith, welcoming you back to our podcast series. This podcast is a little bit different than our previous ones as a lightly edited version of a virtual discussion we hosted on the subject of intelligent digital infrastructure and our newest paper, which was entitled Toward a Smarter Future, Building Back Better with Intelligent Civil Infrastructure. That paper is linked in the podcast notes. Let me introduce our panelists today. Betsy Gardner is a writer for Data Smart City Solutions. She's a producer of the Data Smart City podcast, uh, has a master's in urban and regional policy from Northeastern. Jill Jamison is one of the nation's experts on infrastructure and public-private partnerships. He's president and CEO of Illuminati Infrastructure Advisors and a distinguished senior fellow at the Global Resilience Institute at Northeastern University in Boston. She's a frequent author and keynote speaker on issues such as the ones we're talking about today, as well as public infrastructure, funding, finance, and delivery. Uh, Luna Liu is the American Concrete Pavement Association professor at Purdue University. She's the founding director of the Center for Intelligent Infrastructure, and she leads an interdisciplinary group that works on novel nanomaterials and devices for energy harvesting and sensing applications. I told her she has to talk down to my level and when she presents, or at least translate after she goes through the scientific part. So we had a great panel, and I want to begin by asking Betsy to just uh, summarize the paper, which kind of led to the panel on uh, the importance of digital infrastructure as we think about the future of infrastructure. Betsy. Thanks, Steve. We're going to be diving deeper into our paper towards a smart future, building back better with intelligent infrastructure. As Steve said, I'm just going to give a brief overview of our paper. Uh, before we move to the Q&A session with co-author Jill Jamison and subject matter expert, Professor Luna Liu. This conversation is very timely right now. All eyes are on infrastructure. Uh, tomorrow, uh, there should be, hopefully will be, a vote on a massive infrastructure bill. And the vast majority of Americans, uh, recent polls put it at over 80%, support infrastructure spending. So we know that the U.S. needs to build better infrastructure. We're making the case for building a system of connected intelligent infrastructure, because otherwise we're gonna be back in this same hole in the future. So in our paper, we first define intelligent infrastructure, and then we discuss its benefits, which include life cycle cost savings, enhanced safety and resiliency, better sustainability, and increased equity. To us, an intelligent infrastructure system is one that integrates digital technology, sensors, and data into the physical structures, could be roads, bridges, sewer systems, sidewalks, anything like that, and then uses that information to identify issues earlier, build more climate resilient structures, and to guide equitable investments. That last point for us is really crucial. Intelligent infrastructure systems incorporate equity in every step. Data and mapping have shown exactly where the previous investments in better, safer infrastructure has been built. And it's not in communities of color, it's not in Indian country, it's not in low-income areas. So this is a moment to actually address those issues and use data and smart infrastructure to detail how and where to invest and to hold ourselves accountable to those equity goals. We also do discuss and acknowledge the challenges to intelligent infrastructure which mostly fall under things like the higher upfront cost, the fact that a lot of this technology is still evolving, and there are cybersecurity threats. These issues are addressed in our paper and the policy recommendations, which cover federal, state, and local governments. So we have recommendations for all levels because it's going to take all levels of government to achieve more equitable, sustainable, and intelligent infrastructure. Again, the full set of recommendations is in the paper, but just a few to keep in mind during this conversation are grants and incentives from the federal level, budgeting for smart infrastructure at the state level, and at the municipal level, investing in like comprehensive asset management systems, and then also training uh, local employees and city workers on how to use them. Thank you, Betsy. So 
uh, Jill, let me start with you. It feels to me like building physical infrastructure without digital infrastructure runs a substantial risk of of waste, right? Or lack of resilience or um, lack of dynamic adaptability or reducing uh, maintenance, is, uh, maintenance opportunities. But just without going through the whole list, if all that's true, I haven't heard much discussion of this subject in the debate about the infrastructure bill. Uh, am I wrong? And if I'm right, why not? Why wh was smart infrastructure contemplated in the, in the original bipartisan bill? And if not, why was it overlooked? So yeah, you're right. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the IIJA, which is the bipartisan bill, really replicates all of the problems that brought us to where we stand today. Um, there is a spattering of reference um, in their defense. There's a spattering of references to sensors and smart technologies, but it's very limited. It's V to I technology, vehicle to, to infrastructure technology. So very specific or maybe wildfire sort of sensors, but there's not a writ large approach to, hey, let's invest Invest in a more modernized infrastructure system. And so the United States is woefully dependent on what we call the repair and replacement mentality. So we are still investing. Most of our infrastructure, as we all know, um, was created generations ago. You know, depending on the sector, you might have some in the 60s and 70s, but there are water systems still in urban areas that were created during the Civil War. Uh, Abraham Lincoln takes credit for those. And the fact that they have not been upgraded and, and modernized in a whole scale basis till today is really what's putting us into this, this sort of dire strait. So a couple of things about the IIJA. First of all, the amount of funding, about a trillion dollars over eight-year period, is not that much money, um, to be quite frank. Our infrastructure deficit of the nation is more along the lines of $7 trillion that we need invested by 2030 just to maintain sort of to tread water with GDP. So, so there's not a whole lot of money to go around. Um, but on top of that, to your point, Steve, the, the investment itself is really focused on here, we're going to throw some into bridges, throw some into transportation with very little um, articulation of what it means to modernize and upgrade. It's about money, not about value. And I think that's where some of the, some of the, where the rubber meets the road, they kind of miss the mark on that. Um, it's not to say there's not some consideration of it. The word intelligent infrastructure is mentioned seven times in 2,740 pages. So, seven, <laughs> so we did get seven references. There is like a smart community resources center that has some money that'll go to sort of trying to invest in new technologies in this regard, but there's no linkage between the investment itself and doing these sorts of things. And I think that, you know, there are objectives that are stated in the bill, which is to build back for once in a generation. To your point, how do we build back now when we're reinvesting in Jurassic area methods and, and materials? And on top of that, how can we build in a way that we can prevent ourselves in 20, 30 years being in this exact same situation with a backlog of deferred maintenance, with no real strategic plan for, for mapping this forward. And so, yeah, in my view, they, they, they did somewhat miss the mark on this. Um, that's not to say that it needed to be legislated. There's still opportunities, I think, as this bill rolls out for the implementation to try to incorporate a little bit more in terms of smart infrastructure. And hopefully uh, this conversation today in the paper will, will help to inform how that might happen. Thanks, Jill. Uh, let me pick up on a couple of themes, maybe go to Luna. There's not much conversation at the local level about the life cycle costing of infrastructure. You know, I like, like Jill's build and then replace, right? And mm -hmm. you know, repave or seal the cracks or whatever the case may be. So you really are one of the nation's leading experts on intelligent infrastructure. So how would you, how would one utilize intelligent infrastructure in order to address this deferred maintenance or to build in, in a way to begin with whether it's materials or sensors that allows us to kind of preemptively address maintenance going forward. Thanks, Steve. That's a very important question. How can we use the intelligent infrastructure to address the maintenance issue? I think there is a couple of levels we can look at. First, we can use all the data has been collected. So first, what is the intelligent infrastructure? Maybe we can break down for a second. As Betsy has mentioned, it really is using the IoT sensors and the digital technology to provide a sustainability and resilience and improve the quality of the life, right? 
So mm -hmm. therefore, there is a tremendous amount of the real-time data which can provide a better information about infrastructure at any given moment. This can help us at several levels. First, we can prioritize the maintenance schedule. So therefore, we're not doing just going back every six months of patching. You know, people in Indiana always joke there's two seasons in Indiana. One is the winter season, another is the construction season. Right. I think that's pretty much similar to every wealth in the most of the country. As Jill mentioned, most of the infrastructure has been building about 50, 60 years ago. This is a maintenance season, right? So second is we can really drastically reduce the maintenance cost and not only prioritize, but also reduce the maintenance cost. One important point Steve has bring it up is a life cycle cost, right? So if we're looking at it from life cycle cost perspective, if the road condition drop from fair to the very poor, what happens is you have to double, not only double, triple, maybe spend four or five times more money to maintain that particular road, right? So therefore, we can immediately identify where is needed and then from life cycle perspective, reduce the cost. And another thing it's very important for us to think about it, as Jill mentioned, how can we develop a new policy to prevent the poor maintenance as what will happen today, right? So, so many decisions has been centralized making. I'm using the transportation as example because as a civil infrastructure professor, I deal with bridges and pavement all the time. There may be not be known to the public when the opening the traffic, for instance, if a major interstate going through the renovation, and when we should open traffic to the public actually is determined by the very high level, not the, on the job side, not on the construction side immediately. It's arbitrarily determined at the high level based on the experiments and the historical data. So as such is leading to a drastically traffic congestions, right? When concrete already reach the strength to able to bearing the load of the traffic, we're still not holding open the traffic, holding the traffic. So that's caused a tremendous congestion and the waste of the taxpayers' dollar, time, money, and the resources. So by using this decentralized technology, we can make in the better policy. And also we can encourage and promoting adoption of the new technology. Yeah, one thing I would like to use for example, Purdue University has been working with Indiana DOT since 2019. We implementing smart road sensors in the three interstates. And then this preliminary data has been showing we improved 30% of the construction productivity and reduced the 20% of the labor cost and the related insurance and also reduced 15% of the overuse of material, right? So Therefore, there is a tremendous economic benefits can be regained from this. Have you published, is there a place where we can see that? We have published a paper on this at the American Concrete Institute okay. Journal. And also this project that has been awarded by American Society of Civil Engineering at 2021 Game Changer Award. I want to get back to both of you kind of on particularly Jill on what specific policy or legislative changes would be needed to kind of mainstream infrastructure. But I, th I want to touch on a couple of subjects first. One is resilience and sustainability, climate, and the other is equity. And then we'll go back to the policy stuff. So Jill, back to you. And then Betsy, I'm going to call on you on equity. Resilient infrastructure and infrastructure resilience are important topics. So how would intelligent civil works help the nation in terms of climate resilience? Jill, you're a, really one of the country's leading experts on water and dams and the likes. So how would you think about intelligent infrastructure and that side? And then, uh, Luna, let's go to you and think about what are policies or structures that need to be in place in order to accomplish these digital solutions. Your work on materials is really fascinating and i think everyone needs to hear about that but first jill infrastructure resilience and uh, resilient infrastructure please 
Yeah, I, I think you just called me by accident a damn expert, right? So that's, that's, <laughs> I'm going to take that and just run with it. Um, yeah, they're, they're two separate things, obviously. So we have resilient infrastructure and then we have infrastructure resilience, right? And I can give one example that covers both, and that's in the sort of the dam and levee area. So, so I think smart sensors in general and intelligent infrastructure being rolled out on a piecemeal basis, to be quite frank, for a lot of resilience projects. And I think in the paper, we talk about Hampton Roads area. Uh, and, and some of the sensors are using for flood inundation and trying to be predictive in terms of where climate resilience and, and being able to evacuate people, et cetera. So that's one example, but probably one that I just, I'm, I'm perplexed by why this isn't a thing yet um, is in the dam and levee areas in the United States. So, so many people don't realize that we have in the United States something along the lines of 91,000 dams across the country. Average age of those is something like 57 years, which makes them older than me, which makes me feel good about myself, but not good about our safety as a nation. On the flip side, we have over 100,000 miles of levees. To be quite frank, we have not even mapped all the levees in the United States. Now, when these were first introduced in the United States, many of them were in rural areas. They were for farm purposes, water um, supply, et cetera. Demographic changes, population growth have has made it so that now they're in metropolitan areas. Failure of these dams caused property loss, and we've seen it in Michigan, we've seen it in other places, right? So, so we have all of these dams and levees. 65% of our dams are owned by private entities, so they're not even government controlled, right? So we have this entire issue out there. And right now, our monitoring system for dams and levees is essentially a guy goes out every five years <laughs> and kicks the dirt to see if they're okay. There's not a lot of money in the dam safety programs, et cetera. So, so this is an area where USDA and in some of our rural dams, they've rolled out a system that's already underway, which is the smart dam sensor, dam smart is what it's called. And basically it's a series of sensors and intelligent infrastructure that will alert you to structural failures before they come along. I think if we're looking at policy, and I know we're not there yet, this is one of those things. Why would the federal government ever give money to the national inventory of dams if they didn't insist on some sort of more timely, cost-effective manner of monitoring those dams. So as we build them and going forward, it's something that could easily be put into an integrated system that will help not only in terms of the resilience of our cities, because a lot of this is flood protection and climate resilience, but also the resilience of our infrastructure, right? So we will know in advance if something starts to go wrong. In Europe, we're seeing it writ large. All of the dams that are being built now are including sensors, um, vibration technology, so that there's an opportunity to preventively intervene if there are any sort of issues. And I think, you know, that's just a really easy example for people to understand. But the truth of the matter, it is not normalized in the dam sector where we're seeing a little bit more of this in transportation. You might have some fits and starts in the water sector elsewhere. This is a an area that I think is still pretty wide open. Army Corps of Engineers is an example. You know, that should be part of their building standards going forward to require this sort of things. To, to Luna's point, it saves you money. <laughs> Life cycle side, of course, but it can also save you money in terms of the construction side by, by making sure that you build it right. So I think from a resilience perspective, and you know, I could also speak to sustainability, but I'll let Luna do that. But on sustainability, I'll just say one thing. We've seen it work for water. We've seen it work in terms of water conservation on the supply side. If you have um, a smart uh, pipe system like DC Water has intelligent pipes and those sorts of things with sensors in there to see where there's leaks, in California and elsewhere, they can monitor where their pipe systems are, are starting to, to leak water. We lose in the United States over 16% of our drinking water on a daily basis. That's absurd, particularly in those areas that we have um, water shortages. On the flip side, where we have plenty of water and we have floods, I've talked about dams, and where we have bad water, contaminated water, as we all know, the use of uh, intelligent sensors and whatnot can monitor water in real time so that there can be anonymous data that can indicate where investments need to go in a timely manner to address those sorts of things. Um, so, so I'll defer to Luna, who's much smarter than me, to talk about the, those same issues. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting set of facts, though, about how much water leaks. You know, the same is true about waste in, in the wastewater system or CSO overflows that could be monitored and diverted. There's just so much opportunity in water. Luna, another way to think about sustainability and resilience, obviously, is black hot asphalt is not good for the earth. And I know you're doing a lot of research on building materials. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, sense of resiliency and sustainability, please. 
Sure, absolutely. So as Steve and Jill talk about it, you know, construction and building industry, I think it's one of the largest contributor from the GDP perspective. And also, if you think about it, the vulnerability and the resilience, I think, you know, construction building materials, it has a lot of role to play. For instance, the concrete is very, very brittle material, right? It's very strong. However, it's very brittle. And we heard a lot about even the dam collapse in Michigan, right, and the recent condo collapse in Florida, it's all due to the very brittleness about the concrete material. So if we think about next generation about material, how to improve sustainability and reduce and improve resilience, we need to think about how can we build in the better material, right? A couple of examples I can be giving it's happening in the research community and also in the private industry is the innovation in the materials, for instance, the building flexible concrete. Here, this some slides you know, I would like to share very quickly. This is a traditional concrete under the loading. As you can see, it's very brittle. So a concrete with what we call the ductility, self-healing, cementitious concrete by using nanoparticles. And what we can happen is we can build a very high ductility. And we go through the same loading condition at the same loading speed and same weight. As we can see, concrete can bend almost to 30 to 35 degree angle, right? So this is tremendous ductility has been adding the concrete and this will give a better protection for the civilians using this. However, inevitably there is a crack. So what we can do is we, in the research and private community, the people actually building what we call the self-healing concrete. For instance, this is the, this is the research that has been happening at Purdue. We have pre-cracked concrete and then after eight days, they're fully sealed, right? So this will be tremendously reduce your maintenance cost. We don't have to go back every six months to fix the potholes and that will lead into the corrosion and other issues. And also I know the carbon emission has always been a bigger concern because the concrete and the cement as the largest material used in the world, we are contributing to a large amount of CO2 production. However, currently in our community, there is a tremendous research amount of work. Even the private company has been commercialized some technology called a carbon cure that can secure the CO2 and go through what we call the carbonation can build a better and more resilient concrete infrastructure. It's really very interesting. I'm actually bewildered a little bit why there's not more incorporation of digital infrastructure slash IoT slash concrete sensors to send notices or even in the asphalt of micro cracks or changes in pH level or corrosion. I mean, I know it would cost a little more to build that way, but but the savings over time would be, I'll make up a number, 10 to 1 or 100 to 1 or 1,000 to 1 or... So am I exaggerating in terms of the importance of putting sensors in to new construction or bridges that would send signals about vibration? Tell us a little bit about why there is not more of that. Oh, I think you're absolutely correct. I think that this is a very important thing. We should look into it. However, there is a tremendous barriers on this. One of the barrier, as you mentioned, the cost, right? Construction is very large volume. So unless we can make the sensor very cost effectively, not only detect signal, but also transmitting the signal, connecting the data, storage data, transmitting the data wirelessly, people do not like to use the technology if they have to put more work, right? They just want to deploy the sensor and leave there. So building the sensor cost effectively, that's number one. Number two is if you think about the civil engineering by training, we're very conservative and uh, uh, risk adverse. Uh, I think this is actually a good thing because we do need, you know, buildings of bridges and dam has a tremendous effect, right, on the safety factor. So unfortunately, that also play a negative role when you're taking the new technology. So there is a more vetting process going through um, on that. And the third part, I think, is construction, particular in the construction and civil industry, 
about adopting the technology, we need a higher skill sets of laborers. And we see that's the big challenge in the industry as well, right? The people just do not like to use a high tech if, they're, if we're not making the high tech so simple enough and the cost effectively enough. But I do see the trend in the industry to moving towards that direction. For instance, I, you know, we talk a little bit about Indiana DOT has been partnered with Purdue University taking the sensor in the road. And not only that, Federal Highway is also partnered with us. And we, we have seven, eight other states has been signed up and in the piloting process and adopting the technology. So I do see uh, the trend is going upside, but it takes time. We've got dozens of questions, both from me and from the audience. I've, I'm weaving them into my questions to you all, and we'll definitely run out of time. There's one that just came in. I don't want to mess up the flow because I got questions for Betsy and Jill. But the U.S. is not necessarily or even at all the leader in this. I mean, there's a question about the Dutch. We all know the Singapore story. I mean, what, what countries might American policymakers and leaders look to as exemplars here? I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair question, right? I mean, it's yeah. um, as I mentioned before, in Europe, for instance, in the dam safety, the Dutch have been very much in the forefront of a lot of what's going on in terms of those infrastructure. It's it's generalized. I think in the United States, to Luna's point about the reluctance to integrate this comes, I think, in part because we have a very decentralized system, right? So if you look at the European model, you've got a minister of infrastructure and he can make these sorts of decisions on sort of almost a policy. We, we are a very decentralized country. And so you've got some decisions being made at the local level, some at the state level and some at the national level. And what that leads to is inefficiency in decision-making. So if we look at the bridge sector, well, we know 67% of our bridge are in you know, dire conditions at this point in time. It wasn't until you know, the bridge in, in Minneapolis collapsed and we have the St. Anthony's replacing it, that there was really the first sort of approach in the United States to use bridge sensors. You know, they can monitor vibrations and those sorts of things. Since then, we've seen it take off a little bit more across the bridge sector because of the demonstration effect. But I think, you know, the work that Luna is doing in Indiana, for instance, that's going to help inform other jurisdictions. The challenge we have, and this is where I think the federal government infrastructure bill kind of swung and missed, is that you kind of do need this centralized leadership to say, look, I'm going to invest money in the technologies because we need smart sensors that can you know you can't have battery technology when you've got them in pavements right we've got to we've got to improve the technologies we've got to have the internet of things connectivity but i think that's one of the challenges we have in the united states and it's not just in this it's in everything we do because we are very decentralized and because we are very jurisdictionally driven we sometimes miss out on trends or we're a little bit late lots more questions betsy really quickly any sustainability work is going to end up being equity work because all the research shows the people who are going to be most impacted by climate events, disasters, things like that are going to be increases of color. Sustainability and equity are both so crucial to any kind of intelligent infrastructure. So if you thought about equity, Betsy, and I know you've written on Data Smart about this maybe more than anybody in the country, but so you could think about equity, visualizing where current infrastructure investments are. Obviously, that would show the inequity of the current infrastructure. One could think about equity in improving community participation in where infrastructure development will occur, right? So you're, you're visualizing it. Or you could think about equity and digital infrastructure as how you would build in sensors that would alert policymakers to the disproportionate burdens of folks in mm -hmm. challenged mm -hmm. neighborhoods, think air or water. Do you mm -hmm. just want to kind of uh, give us a couple examples from your writing that might be interesting? Definitely. One of the things we talked about in our paper is the fact that air pollution more negatively impacts Black and Hispanic communities than they actually produce. So more of that air pollution is being produced in predominantly white areas, and it's negatively impacting in communities of color. And there are examples in the paper of cities that have used sensor technology to literally show that these negative health outcomes from air pollution are unfairly impacting and then making changes, particularly in things like mobility and transportation, to try to alleviate a lot of that inequitable burden. 
in Oakland, they have a Department of Race and Equity, and that worked with their DOT to do a huge paving project called the Great Pave. Essentially, they were able to divide up the city and look into what areas hadn't hadn't been invested in. And they found that a lot of the non-white communities have been neglected for a very long time in terms of their um, quality of their streets, so for their paving, and then also in the safety of their streets, particularly as it related to um, like protected bike lanes and safe areas for biking. So they did a whole, essentially a computation to say, where have we not been investing and what are the road conditions? And then they overlaid that with census data and ACS data that showed that those areas were much more likely to be communities of color. And they used all of this data. Um, they put together a whole slideshow to show folks in the city, um, to show residents where they were going to be investing almost $100 million in these local street pavings. And so not only did they end up being able to prove that these areas needed attention, but they were very easily able to convince everyone that these areas should be prioritized for paving. And then like a secondary benefit, a lot of the folks in those communities really didn't believe that the city was going to come in and pave. They felt like they kind of heard it before and there just wasn't a level of trust there. So when they did go in and they showed that they were valuing and recognizing that those areas had been neglected in addressing that issue, then it built a lot of trust uh, between those communities and the city. There's all sorts of things that are kind of interesting. Some like there are curb and sidewalk platforms now that will analyze the data for where the scooters are placed or cost of parking. And, you know, we have many of our cities actually subsidize parking in the wealthier areas, think commercial, where they could actually, if they did sensors and dynamic pricing, they could do a couple of things. They could help direct cars to open parking and save emissions, A, and B, they could generate more revenue in, you know, high commercial areas and redistribute that revenue to resolve transit desert problems, right? So we'd, we don't think about connecting A and B. Jill, you, you, uh, you watch this issue as, as well as Luna. Let me call on you and then Luna next, please, on the equity issue. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that Betsy, Betsy articulated it very well. I, I mean, for somebody who works sort of at the intersection of infrastructure and policy, I, there's a reality that you just have to acknowledge in the United States, and that is money talks, right? And no matter what the definition is of how budgets are prioritized, mm-hmm. it all comes down to who's got the most influence at the moment, who's complaining the loudest, right? Um, so, so, you know, at the federal level, they might do a benefit cost analysis, but those are only, you know, it's the go-go. It's just the outputs are only as good as the inputs, right? And so there's a lot of lobbying that goes on around where infrastructure investment should go. There's a lot of, you know, hand-wringing politicians will take it also in terms of constituencies. Where am I going to get the votes? One of the things I really like about, um, you know, intelligent infrastructure, smart sensors, is it gives you anonymized data. It gives you something that nobody is influencing from a political standing in terms of what is our most urgent need now. And, and I think, to be quite frank, we need that at the federal, state, local. I, I get that politicians may recoil a bit from that because it leaves a little of discretionality out of it. But if we really want to promote equity, then I think that's something that we need to do. And maybe, again, when you're looking at federal, state, and local funding opportunities, Maybe there's a scorecard for the anonymized data that, that, that can be influenced in the budget decision-making process. But I, I just think that we're never going to get around this problem as long as the human subjectivity is involved in it, right? And, and we're getting better. And I get it. We're all scared of the machines taking over the world. <laughs> but there is something beneficial in having good real-time data. So often we see in poor communities, you know, the lack of investment bridges that fall down are usually in their areas. It's not, you know, where the wealthy are going to play golf. And so I think that, you know, having that prioritization, incorporating that, regularizing it is going to be really important in moving forward. And you can't do that without intelligent infrastructure. Yeah, the same would be true, I think. of I always thought that the Chicago array of things, IoT's air sensors, were critically important. There's, you know, we know that the uh, social and health harms done to distressed neighborhoods. And if we measured the air, we could preemptively affect asthma rates or, or, or think about all the harm, not just from lead pipes, but lead pipes, lead soil, doing an- analytics for lead paint. Uh, Luna, what observations do you have? Um, I think both you and Joe has raised a very important point. The most of 
the equity or most of the damaged infrastructure or air quality or anything needs to be repaired actually happen in the rural area. Right. Gio has mentioned about bridges, a lot of bridges, you know, the 16% of the bridges are in obsolete conditions. And if you think about most of them actually located in the rural area, what make it worse if we think about it? Most of agriculture and the manufacture is located in this area. So the big semi trucks that has to go through it and there is no even weighing station on this road, right? You, you know, the weighing station is in interstates. So how those semi-trucks rotated to there is all arbitrarily determined by somebody at some point, right? By historical data. Again, 50 years ago, we built these bridges. We're still thinking the strengths of the bridges, so and so. So this is the important thing we need to think about and address. And I think particularly concerning us is with autonomous vehicle coming in, we talk about the truck applied toning, everything is reliant, you know, the broader band and the 5G connectivity and how we're addressed that in the rural community. That's another issue we really need to, uh, to, to think about it and maybe add it in the bill. We have a lot of issues left. We have governance issues, we have privacy issues, we have security issues, we have P3 questions. Uh, let me set up the governance and talent issue. So when I was deputy mayor of operations for Mayor Bloomberg, before I got there, they had done uh, maybe the, the world's best long-term sustainability project, right? They had a plan, plan NYC. Uh, there, was, there was sustainability uh, opportunities in every department. That's good, but what was even better is there was a long-term sustainability office. This job was to make sure that the agencies of jurisdiction actually paid attention to what was in the plan. Um, and Jill, it was a little bit the same thing I saw that where agencies would present, you know, I was deputy of operations, they present their construction projects. And so you'd say, have you value engineer, engineered this? And they'd say yes. But the yes was pretty haphazard, casual yes. And so they're a centralized like value engineering czar in the OMB then would always find 10 or 15% more savings. So as we, as we think about this issue of kind of governance of, of digital infrastructure, maybe Jill and then Luna, it feels to me like th these issues are, are horizontal issues, but the agencies are vertical issues and the skill sets are different, right? So I'm gonna ask Jill, how would you think about the governance issue? And then I'm gonna ask Luna, where do you get the tech talent, right? Some of it could be from the private sector, but some of it has to be in-house as well. So first, Jill, how do we get from here to there? and then Luna on the tech skills. Well, I'll start with an example of what not to do. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't know that we've actually found out exactly what the best methodology is, but because we are, um, to your point, very diversified in terms of our jurisdictions, even within a city or a state government, right? So you've got your DOT, you've got your water authority, you've got your port authority, you've got, you know, department of planning, et cetera. And each of them, they're of their own stovepipe, right? And so we've seen this in resilience, just in general for flood climate change. Um, so we know that a levy is only as good as its weakest point, but if you need a geographic levy that's going across that, some of it is in the airport, some of it is in a private property that's gonna be developed in the future. Uh, we have not successfully as a nation been able to figure out how do we coordinate across jurisdictions? You may have a resiliency officer, but to your point, Steve, they don't have the teeth or the power to be able to do that. And so I think that we need to start re, really re, revisiting how we're doing things. And maybe it is, you know, you've got your CIOs, you've got your, your chief information officers now that are usually focused on the Internet of Things, but maybe they need an office within there that's also on the integration, because to your point, Steve, we have to look at infrastructure as a system. Um, if our roads and bridges are failing, then our waterway is going to be able to accommodate some of that, right? And so there's this real time sort of, it's a, it's a web of systems that need to be able to work together in real time. And that's outside of any office that exists today. I don't think it should be in an OMB because I don't think it's just a budget issue. I think it's a service and performance, ability, uh, performance issue. And where that's gonna reside on a jurisdictional level, I think is TBD. I don't think any city or any state or any federal agency has figured that out yet, but it may be the need for the creation of something that's a little bit different than what exists today. Yeah, that was a great answer. So uh, Luna, it just seems to me that the opportunities are immense. For example, if you said 
we want to reduce uh, particulate and CO2 emissions, then if you took the sensor data in every intersection in a city, and you wanted to reduce queuing, which were, you know, why cars and trucks are stopped mm -hmm. at lights. Or we had a question about right turns and pedestrian uh, safety, right? And you could tinker with those in order to smooth traffic and or improve safety. It wouldn't be that difficult, but those talents don't reside in most cities around the world and, and very few of any US cities. Now you could have, I'm gonna go back to Jill after you give your answer, because you could think about structuring a public-private partnership where there's a management of uh, managed shared services but they have to be managed by somebody who's inside. So, so first, Luna, how do you think about the technical skills? And then maybe back to Jill on give you an opportunity to make a couple of comments on public-private partnerships. We have like five questions about that as well, Luna. Yeah. So, Steve, I think you uh, raised a very important point. By using the IoT sensor, we can achieve mobility, safety, sustainability, and resilience at the same time, right? So, I don't know if I have an answer where we can get a tech talent. So, there is very difficult. You know, it's challenging, it's not only in the United States globally, but I think fundamentally, as an educator, a professor in a university, I think fundamentally we need to think about it, how we restructure the education system, and particularly at the higher level. If you think about a current civil infrastructure, civil engineer, not only in, with the digital technology, we're not only interactive with buildings, the structures, but also with the sensors, hardwares, right? Embedded systems, IoT communications. So therefore in the education system, we really need to educate the students which exposed to this digital technology, right? Not only just the internet connectivity, but also on the hardware and software part. I think they need at least to be able to carry the same language in the job site and then you know, communicate with each other from education standpoint. And I think that's the important thing. I mean, we need to really think about it. Jill, you consult with a lot of companies on public-private partnerships more often in construction, but also in maintenance, right? So just hypothetically, how would we think about, and there's plenty of ways to do a P3 badly, and there's some ways to do it. So without kind of going, we don't have enough time for you to give us a lesson on, on that, but how would you think about the utilization of the private sector in the digital infrastructure space, specifically as it relates to the management of the data that would flow from the IoT, the algorithms or, um, how to, how to put that together in the right way. You know, I, th I think it's a logical first step, right? Um, to, to, to Luna's point, we've got workforce issues outside of technology in the construction industry. We've had, we've had shortages for years that's not going away. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the jobs part, it has a lot of workforce training associated with it, but really not in this area. And so in the short term, I think we're going to have a workforce shortage in this area. So where do you look when you have sort of a public sector workforce shortage? Very easily, you can look to the private sector. Now, have they done this writ scale in terms of heavy civil engineering? No. But I think we can look to the example of buildings, commercial buildings, right? So we now have smart buildings up and down the chain. People are managing them through centralized management system. They're getting smarter, more technologically advanced. They're working in those areas. It's the same model. Yes, there are differences. Um, and I think that, you know, you could have a company come in under a, a global public-private partnership. It wouldn't be too difficult to, uh, to structure where they could really just advise maybe on some of the inputs. But to your point, Steve, on terms of the outputs and the management of the data, how to synthesize that data um, and, and prioritize it and those sorts of things, I think it's very much within the private sector's um, purview, at least until they can get the public sector up and ready to do that themselves, right? But I think that we, we need to partner. It's all hands on deck at this point. Um, I don't think you need to think of yourself as public or private. I think at this point, it's how can we achieve the outcome? And I don't think that the private sector should be ignored in this particular instance. I think I've touched many of the questions. We got about 10 minutes left. I want to do, <laughs> this sounds ridiculous. I want to do five minutes on privacy and security and five minutes on how to change federal and local policies to accomplish this. I have Luna do one and Jill do the other. So Luna, I was at the computer show in Las Vegas about three years ago and an Israeli company, they were providing security packages, but they showed me, I don't remember what it was, like 25 ways you could hack the connectivity of a vehicle, right? All, all of which were horribly scary, right? They weren't like a little bit scary or like horribly scary. So privacy and security, obviously different issues, but just a couple quick questions about 
how our audience, where they would go to get smarter or are your just kind of overview policy questions on that issue, recognizing that that issue is worth its own hour, but I don't want to omit it altogether. That wouldn't be right either. Yeah, I think when you talk about cyber attack, this is a definitely a very critical challenge confronting the society. If you're looking at it because the cyberspace, even the cyber infrastructure is very, very complex system that including your computer, your sensor, your hardware, your software, your network, your data, where you store the data. So any parts can be attacked, right? So there is a lot of, by nature, it has a lot of vulnerability. So, you know, there is no way anybody can ensure 100% cybersecurity, but we can definitely improve it by using, you know, new modern technology, such as AI-based cybersecurity, authentication, you know, verification, validation, even decentralized the sensor system. I want to give example when you talk about it, how when autonomous vehicle come in the road, how you can cyber attack your vehicle, right? So what if one vehicle is dry, driving maliciously or cyber attack maliciously in all autonomous vehicle? And currently we only have a vehicle to infrastructure or vehicle to vehicle communication. Another thing we need to think about it, is there cost-effectively localized sensor that can quickly identify this malicious driven behavior of the vehicle that can quickly send it a signal or alert the system, right? Not only localizedly, but also to the system wide. And I think that is another important technology we need to look at, not just to rely on the vehicle itself, Right. So because as we talk about, there is no way you can 100 percent ensure. And yeah, of course, the better funding right, <laughs> and investment in the research development in this type of related cybersecurity technology is important. So, uh, Jill, I want you to talk, if you would, close a little bit on policy and legislative change. Let me note that the privacy issues are real, that a city or a state using digital infrastructure should have explicit and transparent privacy principles. They should be doing privacy audits. They should be using anonymous data. Uh, it's a huge issue that deserves attention that Betsy and I did an article on why we shouldn't insist on dumb cities instead of smart cities just because of privacy and security. So just wanted to note that we have some stuff up on our side about that. But Jill, this we have this big debate in Washington and there's going to be money in one way or another and flowing out to the states and cities, and there's money being spent in the states and cities now. What policy or legislative changes at the state or federal level are needed to accomplish the things we've talked about for the last hour? Well, I think let's start at the federal level. Um, you know, I, I think that we have the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which seems to be the blueprint for what's going to go forward, obviously, with some changes. To, to the issue of cybersecurity, that is heavily talked about within the bill, but really limited to, to power, the power sector. For some reason, like the ideas don't cross over from sectors. They're very sector specific, which is a little bit of a disappointment. Um, but that said, you know, legislation is a first step in the implementation of any programs and policies. And so, as I said before, I think that there is still opportunity when implementing this legislation to put in implementing guidelines that would align with what we're talking about. So, for instance, when you're talking about federal grants or loan programs like WIFIA or TIFIA, put in as one of the conditions of getting that federal money a certain level of commitment to smarter technologies, right? Now, what that looks like exactly, to, to Luna's point, we can't ask people to invest in bleeding edge technology that hasn't been proven, but, but you know, there's a difference between forward looking and backward looking, and, and to that extent, some level of that. And so, you know, in the United States, when you want a federal loan or a federal grant, you have to abide by certain requirements, the Davis-Bacon Act, Buy American Act, American Steel Act, add another line. <laughs> um, and that line should be related to this. Uh, that's not that hard to do. I think it would foster American innovation in this as well, because the sector itself would then see itself as being more relevant, et cetera. So I think that's one area. Another, I think at the federal level, would be interesting to have a cross-sector um, SEP, which is a special experimental program, 
Um, and, and within that, they try to get investment into maybe some multi-sector projects or programs where we could link, you know, as we talked about before, bridges and roads and highway systems, et cetera, through the use of smart infrastructure to see how it works, right? Um, see where the cybersecurity vulnerabilities are, et cetera. But that can be done under a SEP program, and that's not a lot of money, so that's easy enough as well. And then I think in, in sector-specific areas, as I mentioned before, um, look, we have a new program that's that's been funded. They're just rolling out the implementation guidelines. But if we look at like the Corps of Engineers with all of the dam work that they do, that's DAM, not DAMN, um, work that they do, <laughs> um, I, you know, having them or, you know, in incentivizing them um, to use damn smart programs and those sorts of things so that in the next 50 to 100 years, we have real-time information about the status of these dams, I think is pretty easy to do. State and local governments, um, I think to your point earlier, Steve, uh, it's really kind of changing the way they do their budgeting, having them look more at the life cycle costs. So, so one of the things we did like in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is there's, there's a lot of references to public-private partnerships, but to life cycle asset management as well, right? And, and I think the life cycle asset management, look at the life cycle costs of this as opposed to first costs. We know that first costs will might be more expensive if you're using this sort of technology. But when you look at it over the life cycle, you're going to be saving costs. You're going to, is, is again, the St. Anthony's Bridge, very good example, was 0.1% of the total cost to put in the bridge sensors. Um, and it saved them countless millions of dollars in terms of repairs and, and those sorts of things. Um, so, so I think that there's, there's a lot that can be done, but it's really normalizing this and also getting the information out. I mean, you've got groups like Luna's team who's doing some great projects and programs, but that really has not been dispersed um, to a national level. And having somebody sort of promoting that, I think is going to be very important to the nation adopting this on a, a larger level. That was great. Yeah, it seems obvious, at least to me, that by not insisting on digital infrastructure, we're, we're giving away sustainability accomplishments, we're giving away safety accomplishments, uh, we're actually wasting money over life cycle costing and to not insist on it is admission that we are not serious about those issues. So we've used our hour. I first want to thank the ASH team, uh, Melissa, Joanne, and Caitlin for making this possible. And to Betsy, Luna, and Jill for just a terrific set of answers. Your expertise is great. And when we will have another one of these that lasts six hours and each one of you can have two hours to talk each. So it's a great session. Thank you very much for your time. And we are adjourned. If you like this podcast, please visit us at datasmartcities.org or follow us at datasmartcities on Twitter. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Betsy Gardner and hosted by me, Steve Goldsmith. We're proud to serve as a central resource for cities interested in the intersection of government, data, and innovation. Thanks for listening.